Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Sport, but not as you know it. Yes, you're good enough. We wish we could take you, but you're a girl. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service. The rules were holding her back, so she would have to rewrite them. Listen now wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. My guest today has spent almost his entire life exploring the world's most biodiverse habitats. And I do mean almost his entire life. He grew up not far from the Atlantic rainforests of Brazil. And as a young boy on family trips, he'd collect wildlife specimens in matchboxes. Since then, he's discovered new species, literally bumping into a new type of coffee plant. Oh, and a new bluebell species and orchid species have been named after him. Alexander Antonelli is the Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew, and Professor of Biodiversity at the University of Gothenburg. He is a biogeographer, an expert in revealing how geography, in particular the formation of mountain ranges, is responsible for the Earth's remarkable biodiversity. His mission has been to bring together scientists from different disciplines to build a more holistic understanding of the way life has changed in the past and help protect it in the future from the impacts of climate change. Alexandra Antonelli, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thanks so much, Jamie. It's a great honour to be here today. Now, we're used to hearing about how life on Earth has been shaped by major climactic events like ice ages. But you focus on local changes, the formation of mountain ranges and rainforests, for example, and how they force the species in those regions to adapt. Yes, exactly. So if you look at how species have accumulated over time across different regions, what we find today is a very striking difference in the number of species you find, for instance, in the Amazon basin compared to, uh, let's say, parts of Africa. So my research has really tried to understand how the change in landscape, so the formation of mountains and rivers, have completely shaped the conditions for species to thrive and evolve. So it's very linked to climate as well, because locally you'll have a massive impact on the weather conditions. So, you know, if you have a mountain, uh, there'll be much uh, rain on one side of it, and then uh, what we call a rain shadow effect, which is usually very dry on the other side. And therefore, you get two sets of species on both sides of the mountain, and in the end, a much higher accumulation of species than what you would have got uh, without a mountain. Mm. And when we think about Brazil, your, your country of birth... The first thing, of course, that comes to the mind is the Amazon rainforest. But you grew up close to the Atlantic rainforest. Why don't we hear more about that? I really don't know, because it's such an amazing ecosystem. It's perhaps the little brother of the Amazon. It's a forest that once covered the entire coast of Brazil and also parts of uh, Argentina and Paraguay. But nowadays, there's less than 8% left. And of course, the Amazon is hugely important for our climate systems, for biodiversity. But the Atlantic forest has on its own a huge set of species which are only found in that region. And there are lots of things we still don't know about that region. Well, we're going to talk about the rainforests and your work in conservation in a little while, but let's talk about you. You grew up in Campinas City, close to São Paulo in southeastern Brazil, but I gather city life wasn't really for you. You were much more interested in what was growing in your garden, for example. Yes, my father would grow all kinds of different fruit trees. My mother who has some indigenous roots. She would grow uh, lots of different herbs and different things we could use to treat all kinds of ailments, you know, from headache to stomachache. 
mentioning your father what was his background because of course listeners are going to be aware that your name Antonelli sounds Italian not Portuguese it does sound Italian because my family from my father's side is all from Italy and they came to Brazil like many other Europeans in the last decade of the 1800s to cultivate grapes really to make wine so from my father's side they're all Italians but from my mother's side it's actually a much more interesting background where we have a very mixed set of people from as I said indigenous communities uh, we had some African slaves we had all kinds of different origins and that really characterized many of the Brazilian population nowadays. I gather you've been trying to trace your family history and it's been quite hard to do. It is not easy, it's true, and especially because uh, indigenous communities won't usually have written records about who's born and where, so it's been quite a bit of a challenge. I'd love to know more about my indigenous origins, and it's a bit of a shame because I actually do have an Italian passport. I've never lived in Italy, I don't speak Italian, but because of the law in Italy and the fact that we can inherit a citizenship through my father's side only, that allows me to become an Italian citizen. I'd love to have an indigenous passport as well, or some sort of proof that, you know, I On actually... On your mother's side. My mother's side, yes, <laughs> but I don't. Well, as a family, Alexandra Antonelli, you would often go on trips to the Atlantic coast. And I understand that one of your very earliest memories is a wildlife encounter you had one day in the rainforest. Yes, I really remember that. My family was on the beach, like everyone else, just, you know, playing football or swimming in the sea, but I, I wasn't that interested in that. So I just walked into the forest, which is just like a couple of hundred meters away. And then I was on my own. I was perhaps five or six years old. And then all of a sudden I saw this blue metallic thing flying towards me. And I was quite scared, to be honest, because, you know, it was this huge thing flying r- right towards me. And then it took a turn and, and, and flew away. And that was a morpho butterfly, one of the largest species of butterflies we have there in the Atlantic forest. And I was really less struck, you know, because I, I didn't know those things could exist. And um, I, that completely changed my understanding and my interest in what I could find in the forests. And uh, I've always been a collector. I always would gather shells and stones and beetles I put in my pocket and bring home to look at them. And uh, it's just an amazing memory that I still think a lot about. So that, sometimes. that, that event is what kick-started your obsession with collecting specimens? Possibly, yes. <laughs> a couple of years later, I, you know, I, I didn't know anyone who was collecting insects and looking at you know, creepy things. But I, I was reading a Donald Duck um, magazine when I was a, a kid, and, and then I saw this butterfly net, and he chasing butterflies. And, and then I just made one of them, uh, you know, got some cloth and put it together. And one day I saw one of those flying, and I... I run for my life, and uh, then I did manage to catch one of those, and uh, you know, was very, very proud of having one of those because they were really, really difficult to catch. I gather is it is it true you still have that? I do. I have that. Yes, I do have it at home. That's, that's so so yes. sweet, actually. And I've applied for all the permits to bring it home, but yeah, really? I do have them. Yes. <laughs> but when it came to picking your subjects at school, you didn't choose biology to begin with, did you? Uh, not at the beginning. There was some sort of preconception or idea that it would be very difficult to get a job as a biologist. And my brother had started to study computing uh, for high school, so I basically followed on his footsteps. And that made me quite unhappy, to be honest, because you know it wasn't really my thing to sit in front of a computer and, and, and do programming. But eventually at school, you did decide that computing wasn't for you. You switched to biology. I did. Uh, so, yeah, as I started studying biology at university in Brazil, in Campinas. I got a bit restless after half a year and I wanted to see the world, basically. So I went on travelling and I spent about three and a half years travelling, hitchhiking around different countries, 
going to lots of different nature reserves and just seeing part of the world. So you, you, you dropped out of university? I did. So basically I said I would come back in half a year and I haven't been back since, I don't know, many, many years, <laughs> 25 or so. I know you, uh, when you're travelling around Central America, you ended up spending time diving in the waters of Honduras and you didn't just fall in love with the coral and marine life there, did you? No, no, not really. Uh, so I was working as a dive master and then this beautiful lady walked in and she later became my wife, um, the Swedish Anna, and my brother still thinks that I proposed to her under the water, which not quite true, but I never told him that. That's, that's a romantic story, but presumably some, somewhat difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then your adventure came to a sudden stop when news arrived from your family in Brazil. Yes, that was a very difficult thing to remember. Um, I had been travelling for three and a half years, as I said, and... Um, you know, it wasn't the time where you could reach out to your family through social media or anything. But then uh, eventually my sister got hold of me and it turned out that my, my father uh, had just just passed away really young um, due to a heart attack. He had passed away about three weeks before and it was so difficult to get uh, through to where I was in Honduras, in the Caribbean. And that just completely changed everything. It must have been tough for you, finding out so late that your father had died, getting back, presumably you missed a funeral and things like that. Yes, I mean, it was really hard, hard on me. I was just 19. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you just have to get on with it. And uh, we decided to move back to Sweden, where my wife came from, and spent a bit of time and then continued travelling around the world. So you moved to Gothenburg in Sweden. What attracted you there? Well, I mean, first was the practicalities. We needed a bit of money to continue travelling. But then when I was there, I found out that there was actually a research group working in South America. And then the guy there, the professor who was a specialist in South American species of plants and, and biogeography, and he was the one who introduced me to that concept, which I found absolutely fascinating. That combination of biodiversity, so basically the different life forms, and how that changed drastically, you know, if you go to mountain or if you go to a coastal area or a grassland. Uh, so just trying to understand the links between space, uh, time and, and life, studying how plants and other species move around across the globe, what's the evolutionary history. And in a, in a sense, I think it reflected my own past. I, I did like moving around and learning more. So I think that it, it was really something that completely changed my thinking for the future. So we never actually... Uh, got to continue travelling. So I stayed there, I did a shortened version of a, a university degree, and then I did a PhD, and then I went on to, to do something else. During a PhD, I gather, tragedy struck again for you. Yes, it did. Basically, it's a, a five-year programme as a PhD, but after one and a half years only, I went to see my supervisor, and we we're going to plan our next field trip. So we did a bit of field work together, and also talk about a conference. But then just two days after that, he passed away very suddenly. So all of a sudden, I had no supervisor, no one who knew the topic of my PhD thesis. And people were saying, you know, we don't know how to deal with you. So I basically had to make a decision, which was either just quit or to try and take full ownership for my own project without a supervisor. So basically, we convinced the funding agency to allow me to keep the funds. I, I found some people who would be able to help me. And just after a few months, I've just felt completely on board of actually taking the full responsibility and making all the decisions I needed. 
And it's the study of the biodiversity around mountains that's your real niche. This connection between what's called the Andean uplift, the, the, the formation of, of the mountain range six to ten million years ago, something like that, and the biodiversity and evolution in the region. Yeah, so despite the fact we only have one-eighth of the surface of Earth covered by mountains, they comprise about one-third of all different species. So mountains are really species rich. They play an incredibly important role when it comes to response to climate change and species' ability to disperse so that they can survive instead of going extinct. And they're also really important for people because they provide um, you know, water supplies to billions of people around the world. So it's interesting to see how mountains were created and how that had a completely transformative effect on landscapes and so many new habitats so that species could develop and this is something that I have focused a lot on and understanding why uh, in particular South America is so much more diverse than any other tropical region I found was very dependent on the fact that the Andean mountain chain uh, exists there and that really contributed a huge proportion of the total diversity in South America. Tell me about that, because I think you discovered that the Andes formed gradually rather than abruptly because of some shift in, in the landmass and the Earth's crust. Yeah, so basically the formation of the Andes happened more or less at the speed your nail grows. So a few centimetres per year, and that's a quite rapid pace for a mountain, okay. to be honest. <laughs> and that's about the same speed as the South American continent drifted apart from Africa. So that's really why we have such an extensive mountain chain, the world's longest mountain chain from north to south, about 7,000 kilometres. And that's also why we have such a diverse landscape in South America. Tell me about the important consequence that this research had in explaining how what we now call the Amazonian rainforest first formed. So the Amazonian rainforest is the largest, the oldest and the most diverse of all tropical rainforests. And uh, the main reason really why we have so many species is because of the long-term stability of, of that region. It's the oldest that we know from in terms of the fossil record, but it's also because of the connectivity. So for millions and millions of years, the Amazon has exchanged species with other biomes across the American tropics. So basically, throughout evolutionary history, species would migrate from the Amazon into the Mesoamerican forests uh, into the Atlantic rainforest. Some of them would go from the lowlands to the Andes and every time they arrived to a new place they would diversify into new species new life forms and the combination of all those different species and the biotic interchange among different regions is really one of the main reasons why we have so many more species in the American tropics compared to any other tropical region today. What wasn't the Amazonian rainforest underwater bef before the Andes formed? It was wetland. Before the Andes formed, um, there wasn't really a proper um, Amazonian biome because water was draining towards the Caribbean, no so northwards, and there wasn't any mountain chain in the west. But then uh, South America was drifting uh, to the west and the mountains started to, to form. Uh, there was an accumulation of water, of wetlands in the western part of the Amazon, about the size of Egypt, and that really prevented a species that are terrestrial to diversify. So that lasted, we don't quite know, but possibly for a few million years and several episodes as well. And then as the mountains continue to uh, grow, uh, they basically cut off the drainage to the north and then 
an opening happened towards the east, and that's when the Amazon River was born. And there's a bit of a discussion about the exact timing, but probably around 9 to 10 million years ago. And that resulted in the landscape as we know it today, basically. So the mountains continued to rise, but all the water was draining to the east. And that's also when most of the species we find in Amazon today originated. Whilst you're working on your PhD, Alex Antonelli, you, you also had a lot going on in your home life. In 2004, your son Gabriel was born. Two years later, you had twin girls, Clara and Maria. Just as the girls turned two, you were on the move again. This time, you were taking up a research position in Switzerland. And it sounds quite a journey for you and your family to get there. Uh, it was a bit of a bumpy journey, to be honest, because we basically drove down from Sweden to Switzerland we packed everything into an old van that I bought and then just like half an hour after starting driving the whole engine blew up in <laughs> Germany which was a bit of an adventure and not a very happy one perhaps uh, but we made it there uh, so I did a postdoc for one and a half years uh, which is to understand how different plants have moved around and used DNA and different analysis to trace the biogeographic history of those plants But after that you were pulled back to Sweden Yeah, so I was offered a really interesting, nice job back at the Botanic Garden in Gothenburg to be responsible for the tropical collection. So then I moved back. By this point, you'd also got an, an academic position at the University of Gothenburg. Yeah. So basically, you know, I loved my job in the garden, but of course, I'm always going to be a researcher. So I basically started applying for grants and it turned out that I became a professor there at the University of Gothenburg. But your wanderlust hadn't completely disappeared. You were on the move again. You got an an invitation from Harvard to go over to the US to spend some time there. On your way back from Harvard to Sweden, you're contacted about a job opportunity to become Kew Gardens Director of Science. Yes, that was an interesting one because I really wasn't looking for a new job. I was really happy. You know, I had a full professorship in Gothenburg. I had lots of grants, a really nice research group. So I was perhaps did as, as good as it can get. But then, you know, Kew is an absolutely incredible place. For botanists, it's probably the mecca for anyone interested in plants and, and biodiversity. So I said, well, maybe maybe I should send in an application. I had been to Kew a few times and was just so impressed by the wealth of knowledge that this organization has. And yeah, I, I did apply. I sent in an application and it turned out to work well. You were surprised you got the job, I gather. I was extremely surprised, I must <laughs> say, because, um, you know, it was after a very intense interview, two days, like a marathon, at the end, and uh, and then I got a phone call at the airport on the way back, and then, you know, our director phoned me up to say that I had got the job, and I really thought it was a mistake. You know, I really thought, sorry, but I, I don't think you, you called <laughs> you've, the right you've, you've called the wrong candidate because <laughs> I had seen the other candidates waiting out for and outside, and I, I, I said, you know, I just have no chance. Well, you took the job, and today a big part of your work there involves looking for solutions to climate change. And you believe that Kew's vast archive of plants and fungi, 8 million specimens collected over two and a half centuries, could actually be helpful. One example is coffee plants. Coffee production is an important, some would say vital crop, obviously. (laughs) But it is being hit by climate change. Could your work at Kew help with this somehow? Yes. So it turns out that in the past, people would consume different varieties and different species of coffee. But then in the 1900s, production of coffee really relied on one uh, major crop, which was the Arabic coffee. And we found that some of the neglected varieties and species actually contain much better traits that make them more suitable to the future warmer world that we are expecting. 
So, for instance, in Ethiopia, there are millions of producers who now grow Arabic coffee, but there's no way of making those crops resilient to drought and extreme heat waves. But we know that there are some other varieties, and some of them are much more resilient to coffee, and they taste great. So we do think that by seeking genes or traits in other crop-wild relatives will help us to develop coffees and, and other products which are more adapted to a future warmer climate than those that we rely on today. Well, that's a small reassuring success with the threat of climate change. At least we'll have coffee to drink. I hope so. <laughs> um, as well as protecting what we already know exists, the priority for you is to save new as yet undiscovered species from extinction, species that could be lost if we don't go out and find them first. Yes, that's correct. So new species are more likely to be threatened than species we know already. So when we know where species occur, we are also much more able to protect that environment. So despite the fact we've been researching species for more than 200 years, we still only know about 10% of all species and about 20% of all plant species, perhaps. So I think it's absolutely imperative that we speed up the description of new species using new technologies and that will help us uh, identify new traits and properties that are going to be useful to humans, but also to enable their protection for the future. I want to move on to another project you're involved in at Kew. You and your team there have also been looking at the timber trade. There's a huge problem with wood being sold that has been logged illegally. European Commission says 20 to 40 percent of global wood production is estimated to come from illegally logged tropical forests, even wood labelled as sustainable. You've been working on ways to tackle this. Yeah, so it's really a major driver of biodiversity loss today. So the destruction of habitats is considered the number one cause of species disappearing. And we at Kew have estimated that about two in five, so 40% of all plants are now threatened. But the second main driver of threats to plant species is from direct exploitation. So what we're doing is to build a very vast resource of wood samples with a latitude and longitude. And that allows us to trace the chemical signature in those samples. So that's the stabilisotope analysis we're doing. And then Border Control sends us a sample of a, a wooden furniture. They want to know what it is. We can both identify the species, sometimes using AI as well for image recognition. And then we can do a chemical analysis to see where the species where, come where from. It, where it came where from. from. Yes. Right, right. Yes. And we are finding that about perhaps 40% of all international timber trade might be illegal in, in some sense. Are there perhaps the, the wrong species which is put on the label or maybe the right species as it says but from a region which was newly deforested. In 2020, Alex, you, you did some work on logging in Cameroon which caught the attention of the actor Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, so that was work by my colleagues who have been working with the botanist in Cameroon and there's a place called the Ibu Forest, which is a really diverse ecosystem with several plant species that are found nowhere else. But then the government there had allowed a concession to develop some of that forest. And we embarked on a campaign and, you know, basically tried to convince the government to revert its decision. And then we did get help from Leonardo DiCaprio, who tweeted about this. And then, you know, <laughs> things just turned up and, uh, and it worked out. So they basically reverted the decision and now the Ibo forest is protected. And I think that's a great example of how knowledge about plants really can help protect those ecosystems for the future. And I gather Q ended up naming a species of tree after DiCaprio as, as a thank you, didn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, 
in in your book, The Hidden Universe, which was published last year, you tell a story about your daughter downloading an app that promised to plant a tree if she spent a certain number of hours doing her homework. Uh, you wrote that that set your mind worrying. What would they plant? Uh, how would they do it? And would it actually be good for the environment? Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a madness now, isn't it? That a lot of people talk about tree planting and some people say, I'll plant a million trees, I'll plant a billion trees or a mm. trillion trees. And, you know, as this would be a means of saving the planet. So I just really got interested in exactly where was that money going and, you know, what will happen. Because that is the easy success story. You plant lots of trees. After all, all trees just take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Surely it's good. So we just plant trees that grow very quickly, for example. But what you're saying is very often that can do more harm than good. It can, really can. I've seen so many examples through my travels. You go to these fantastic nature reserves with all the endemic and native flora, but then all of a sudden you see these eucalypt trees from Australia planted in Africa or South America, and they grow really fast, but they also suck all the water that exists in the groundwater, and they also impact the biodiversity around it. So, you know, they're almost deserts of biodiversity. So we really have to think more holistically. First thing is always to protect first. So there's no point of, you know, cutting down the Amazon or other forests to replant it afterwards because it yeah. takes Don't cut it down centuries. in the first place. No, yeah. don't do that. <laughs> you said you'd always wanted to give something back to your, to your country. You recently set up two foundations in Brazil with your wife, one of which involved buying 120 hectares of rainforest just outside Rio de Janeiro. Can you tell me about that project? Yeah, so I love being a researcher and that I'm very passionate about scientific questions and hypotheses. But at the end of the day, to be honest, you know, I had published more than perhaps 200 papers or so. And I just realized I'm not sure how many of those are actually leading to a real world benefit, you know, something you can really see with your eyes. So we basically made the decision to put all the money we had. So we had, I think, 200 pounds in our account afterwards. But we basically bought a, a piece of forest in Brazil. And the main goal really is to understand and protect Brazil's Atlantic forest. We want to use the best possible science so that we can both identify the priorities for conservation and also start restoring, so bringing back some of those amazing forests so that future generations will be able to enjoy that as well. You do sound optimistic about the future. I am an incredible optimist. I, I do believe there are solutions, and I know there are solutions. It's not only like a romantic view, you know, physically or mechanistically, there are ways of getting us out of this mess, basically. Because we know that the things we have to do uh, are quite simple. We need to protect what we've got left. We need to restore what we've lost. We need to fight climate change. We need to stop invasive species. And we need to consume less. And what we consume, we need to consume better and greener products. If we do all those things together, we know that we can bend the curve on biodiversity loss and start restoring some of the amazing life forms we have on this planet. Alex Antonelli, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you so much, Jim. Picture the scene. You're 12 years old, a talented ice hockey player, but despite your skill on the rink, you're not allowed to compete at the highest level of the sport. The reason? You're a girl. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of Justine Blaney, the girl who fought to change the rules around mixed-sex ice hockey teams in Ontario, Canada. Listen now by searching for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.